today we're going to be considering Psalm 130. This is the word of our Lord. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from his iniquities. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we bow our knees to you through the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Father, we pray that as we consider this passage, you would grant us according to the riches of your glory. Strengthen us with might through your spirit in the inner man. We pray that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. May we be rooted and grounded in love. Lord, grant to us to grow in our knowledge of your love so that we may be filled with all the fullness of you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope. That's the simple title I chose for this sermon. Hope. In the middle of a broken world filled with suffering, that's that's really what we need. Hope. That's what we need when we look at our own hearts and see the darkness of sin in it. We often find ourselves with a psalmist in the depths, and I, um, it, I'm afraid to say that it happens more often than I would like to admit. Now, what was his hope in the depths of despair and darkness? As we read this psalm, it becomes obvious that his hope was God and God alone. God was his hope. Whoever this psalmist it was, he could very well say with the sons of Korah, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Now, what kind of psalm is this? This psalm is part of the great Hallel, normally associated with the Passover. The Psalms 111 through 136, that they have in common the word for praise in most of them. And they are commonly associated in later Judaism, this second temple Judaism, with the Passover feast. But as we read the title, we also see that this psalm is a song of ascents. Uh, the Psalms of Ascents are 15 psalms that were likely sung by pilgrims as they ascended, as they went up the hill to Jerusalem during the three pilgrim feasts of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacle. And what's peculiar about this psalm is that the psalm it's itself it, it internally is also an, an ascent, is a going up. The psalmist ascends from the depths of the depths of despair to proclaiming the mercy of God. We also see that this psalm is a lament. There are several psalms in the, the Psalter that are laments, and this is one of them. It is a cry to the Lord. It is the experience of a believer who has been brought low either by his own sin or by sin around him. Psalms like this help us express ourselves in moments where words don't seem to come naturally. I really like what Carl Truman said in his article, What Can Miserable Christians Sing Concerning the Vocabulary 
that psalms of lament like this one give us. He says, read the psalms over and over until you have the vocabulary, grammar, and syntax necessary to lay your heart before God in lamentation. If you do this, you will have the resources to cope with your own times of suffering, despair, and heartbreak, and to keep worshiping and trusting through even the blackest of days. You will also develop greater understanding of fellow Christians whose agonies of, say, bereavement, depression, or despair sometimes make it difficult for them to prance around in ecstasy singing, Jesus wants me for a sunbeam on a Sunday morning. And you will have more credible things to say to those shattered and broken individuals, be they burnt-out bank managers or down-and-out junkies, to whom you may be called to be a witness of God's unconditional mercy and grace to the unloved and the unlovely. This is really what the Psalms do to us, particularly these Psalms of Lament, as Psalm 130. This is also a penitential psalm, one of seven penitential psalms in the Bible. We considered another one last week in Psalm 51. These are confessions of sin, but not just confessions of, of sin. These are individual confessions of sin that have been shaped to become corporate confessions of sin, corporate cries of sin. And lastly, this psalm is a Pauline psalm according to Luther. Uh, Luther said that Paul could have written this psalm because of his, its emphasis on imputation and unmerited forgiveness, as we're going to look at a little later. And this psalm starts with the psalmist's despair. Look at verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I've cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. The psalmist is in the depths because of an awareness of sin as we begin this psalm. And we know that 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 it was an awareness of sin that caused him to be in the depths because of the relief he experiences when he remembers God's forgiveness as in verses 3 and 4. And his awareness is either of sin in general, no, his own sin, or partic- a particular sin that he has in mind that he has caused him to go to the depths of despair. And in despair, the psalmist does the only thing he can do. He turns to the only one who can do something about his despair, God himself. Ed Ed Welch, in his book, Depression, looking up from the stubborn darkness, says this about this psalm. He says, while teetering on the edge of the abyss, the psalmist has a choice. He can mourn his fretful condition, or he can cry out, to the Lord. And that's exactly what he does. He, and he doesn't just talk with God in this prayer. He cries out to him. And this reminds me of what Paul says in Romans eight twenty six, where he says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And that's the, the impression we get about this psalmist, that he is almost in that place that he doesn't even have words to say, and yet he cries out to the Lord. Uh, the good old Puritan Presbyterian commentator Matthew Henry says, In these verses we are taught, whatever condition we are in, though ever so deplorable, to continue calling upon God. It is our duty and interest to, call, to, tr- to, to, try, to cry unto God 
for that is the likeliest way both to prevent our sinking lower and to recover us out of the horrible pit and the miry clay. And that's why it's so important for you to listen to this. If you're looking inwardly into your heart or outwardly to the world for deliverance, you will only sink deeper into the depths of despair. If your cry out of despair is not to God, you're just going to go further and further deeper into despair. And that's why the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, If man were to be judged upon no system but that of works, who among us could answer for himself at the Lord's bar and hope to stand clear and accepted? If we're coming to anything else but God, and if we're coming to God just because we think that we deserve something, we are going to just slip deeper into despair. And let, let me give you an example from the Psalms themselves of what it feels to be in the depths. In Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. This is the idea. This is where the psalmist is in the depths of despair. It's like the bottom of a well where it's very muddy in the bottom and you're sinking into that mud. You can't get out. The waters are coming up. It's up to your neck. Pretty soon you can't even breathe. That's the feeling of despair the psalm is under here. Or perhaps you can uh, think of being buried in the tidal flats and the tide is coming in and you can't do anything and more and more the waves are lapping against you coming up to your neck and you feel like you can't do anything that's the depths that the psalmist is speaking here but he moves from the depths of despair to hope and we see that in verses three through six the psalmist's hope if you lord should mark iniquities O lord who could stand but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. The bottom line is this. The psalmist's hope is God himself. And God is his hope because he knows who God is. He knows that God is a God who has covenanted with his people to be their God forever and through everything. We see that in the use of the word Lord in verses 1 and throughout, where the capital L-O-R-D is the, the translation or the attempt to translate God's covenantal name, the, the name that God revealed himself by to Moses and to Abraham when he entered into a covenant to be their God and a God of their children. And that's the promise that God makes to us, that he's going to be our God and we're going to be his people regardless of whatever that we're going through. He, his hope is in God. God is his hope because he knows that God is a God who listens to the cry of his people. In verse 2, he, he, he says, Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. He knows that God hears. Perhaps what God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 is resonating in his ears, where the Lord there says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. 
Or perhaps he was anticipating what the Holy Spirit was going to say through the author of Hebrews when he says there in chapter 4 of Hebrews that we have a sympathetic high priest who knows what we're going through. And then he encourages us to come before his throne even boldly because God listens to us. God is the hope of the psalmist because he is a God who is absolutely sovereign. The God who covenants with his people is a sovereign God. If you look at verses um, verse 5 and 6, you're going to notice that the word Lord is written differently in those two verses. The first Lord is capital L-O-R-D, and the second Lord is just written regularly. The first Lord is God's covenantal name. The second Lord is Adonai, the God Almighty. So the God who covenanted with his people is also the Almighty God who can do the things that he promised to do. So here we have a God who is worth crying out to, who is our hope. The, 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 the psalmist put his hope in God because he knew that his God was a God who forgives the sins of his people through the blood of Jesus Christ. He says that in verses 3 and 4. He, his hope is in God because God is a God who speaks and who spoke ultimately through Jesus, who is the word of God incarnate. In verse 5, the psalmist says that in his word, in God's word, I do hope. And ultimately that word is the Lord Jesus Christ who became flesh. The, the God is the psalmist's hope because he knows that God is a God who is loving. Look at verse 7. The middle of verse 7 where it says, For with the Lord is mercy. And the word translated mercy is a, a rich word that can be translated in several different ways, all true at the same time. It can be translated mercy as it is in the New King James. It can be translated steadfast love as it is in the ESV. It can be translated loving kindness as it is in the Old King James. It can be translated unfailing love as it is in the NIV. But perhaps the best translation is covenant faithfulness. God's love for us is a reflection of the commitment he has made to us in and by his own name. In Hebrews 6, we have this interesting discussion of uh, how God is faithful to Abraham, and because he's faithful to Abraham, he's faithful to us. And the author goes through great lengths to describe that the reason God is so faithful to us is because he promised to be faithful by his own name, and he will not deny himself. That is his covenant faithfulness. So in Hebrews 6, starting verse 13, we read this. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So talking about Abraham obtained the promise. For man indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to their heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus. So ultimately, this the psalmist cries out to God because God is his hope, and because he knows 
that God is a covenant God who is faithful to his people because he swore to be so by his own name. You know how sometimes people say, I swear on my mother's grave that I'm going to do this or that and the other thing, as if that strengthens what they're saying. Well, God swore to us that he's going to be our God and that we're going to be his people through thick and thin by his own name. And he's never going to betray his name. And the psalmist hopes in and for God because he knows he will find forgiveness in God. Look at verses 3 and 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. God won't count his sin against him. God won't mark his sins against him. Whatever issue the psalmist is going through, he knows that they don't come even close to what he really deserves. And on top of that, he knows that God is not going to count those against him. And the fact that we don't deserve anything, no matter how godly or how holy we are, and I don't mean this in a joking way, we can be walking with the Lord, we can be living holy lives, we can be godly people, but at the the height of our godliness, we always come before God as beggars who don't deserve the least of His mercies. You know, most people are willing to admit that everyone is a sinner. Some people might even admit that they themselves are sinners. But God won't become their hope. God won't become your hope. God won't become our hope till they recognize that they are sinners in practice and own up to particular sins. It is when we concretely think of ourselves as sinners that we find great hope in God. It's interesting to note that the Old Testament saints, as we read in a psalm, this psalm and others like it, already knew about the unmerited pardon of God. People tend to say that the Old Testament saints were saved just by obeying the law, that they don't, didn't know anything about grace. And yet, right here in verses 3 and 4, we find that the, the hope of the psalmist was the unmerited pardon, the unmerited forgiveness, the unmerited grace of God. A point that Paul makes in the New Testament in Romans 4, verses 5 through 8, by quoting another psalm, another penitential psalm, Psalm 32, where David says a similar thing to Psalm 130. Now, what exactly is the, this forgiveness that the psalmist is so excited about? It is God's declaration that he does not hold anything against us because Jesus took upon himself the guilt of everything we have ever done or will ever do against God. It is the declaration that nothing can separate us from the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. It is, it is a relationship really well illustrated by the parable of the prodigal son. In the, in, the, in the parable of the prodigal son, in Luke 15, we have the story in which this son, the younger son, asks his father to give to him his portion of his inheritance, and then he goes away and lives a life of ungodliness, squandering the money, surrounded by all kinds of wicked friends, that uh, once the money is gone, they are gone, and eventually this son finds himself working, feeding pigs, and then he realizes what he had with the father. And picking up the story in Luke 15, verse 17, we read this. When he, that is the son, came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father 
and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son, who was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Do you see the hope of the psalmist here? Do you see the hope that the psalmist had that as a repentant sinner, God is going to forgive him and embrace him? That's exactly the hope that the psalmist had. That's exactly the only hope that we have. So the psalmist found the hope in his despair when he considered his sin and God's forgiveness. Now, uh, turn to God to forgiveness or you have great hope because God forgives is not the advice that we would naturally turn to if a depressed person came to talk with us. And it's not the advice that we naturally receive and rejoice if we are depressed. Often sin is the last word that we want to bring into any conversation around the topic of depression. Yet, it is in sin talk and forgiveness talk that the psalmist finds great hope. A hope that provides steps or a stairway for him to get out of the depths and find himself, that he finds himself in and find his hope in God. And because he knows God as a forgiving God, the psalmist is able to wait for him. Look at verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. Uh, the words wait and hope mean the same thing in this context. To wait for is to hope in. So John Calvin says, when a man embracing the word becomes assured of having his welfare attended to by God, this assurance will be the mother of waiting and patience. Notice that this is not an outward sort of hope. It's not like he has this demeanor of hope that people can see and say, wow, that guy is really hoping in the Lord. But his soul deep hope, it is his soul who is waiting and hoping in the Lord. And the psalmist illustrates his hope for the Lord with the watchman who is keeping guard on the wall. In verse 6, again, it says, My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. Now, the watchman, during the last watch of the night, would fix his eyes on the horizon in great expectation of the rising of the sun. He didn't wonder if the sun was coming up. He knew what's coming up. And with it, the shadows where the enemies could hide would be dissipated another night without the attacks of the enemy. And he could go home knowing he had uh, done his job. And the repetition here in verse 6 of exactly the same words gives the impression that this wait can be extended 
It can be painful, but also that the psalmist is convinced that the sun is coming. He's not doubting that the sun is coming in the morning. And to bring the words of another psalm into this one, the watchman was excited about the morning because joy comes with the rising of the sun. Even if after a difficult night of crying, because that sun is the Lord Jesus Christ, as prophet Malachi tells us in Malachi 4 verse 2, the Lord speaking through the prophet, he says this, but to you who fear my name, the sun, and that is S-U-N, of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. So here the psalmist is hoping in God because he knows that his God is coming. And his God is coming in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he moves from despair to hope to testimony. So in in verses 7 and 8, we see the psalmist's testimony. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The ascension from the depths is completed when the psalmist declares to others the work that God in Christ has done for them. The psalmist is experiencing here the new song that God placed in his mouth. Much like David in Psalm 40 verses 1 and 3 say, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay and set my step, my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God, and many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. See here the same movement where David talks about being stuck in the Mari pit in the depths, but yet God himself brings him up as he hopes in God and establishes him in the sure foundation of a rock, that rock being the Lord Jesus Christ. He, the psalmist here in Psalm 130 wants others to have the same hope as he does. And the, the psalmist's testimony is that God's mercy and forgiveness cannot be exhausted. Because God's redemption is abundant and his love is unfailing, the sinner doesn't have to despair. And this is the message for the church of Jesus Christ when, because he says, Oh Israel, hope in the Lord. Church, where is your hope right now? What is it that you're trusting in? What, what is it that you're hoping is going to deliver you from whatever situation you are in? God himself redeems his church from all her iniquities, as he says there in verse 8. And, and as we come to a close in our sermon today, I want to consider, I want you to consider the psalmist and you. And I want to ask you four application questions. Do you believe that seeing sin in yourself is a good thing? Here you are feeling like your self-worth couldn't lower. And I ask you to acknowledge that you are sinners who currently have sinful thoughts, words, and deeds in your life. But contrary to popular belief, it is a good thing when we see sin in ourselves for at least two reasons. One, Sin might feel natural, but we were originally created to live without it. True, unadulterated humanity is sinless. And we won't experience that on this side of heaven, 
But as we battle with sin, we get tastes of how we were intended to live. And when we are forgiven by God, like the psalmist, we find joy and hope. And that's only possible if we see that having, if we understand that seeing that we have sin in our lives is a good thing. The second reason is for this is that when we see sin in us, it is evidence that God is close to us because it is the Holy Spirit who reveals sins to us. In John 16, verse 8, our Lord says, when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. If you see sin in your life, have hope because the Holy Spirit is at work in you. Knowledge of sin is a tangible evidence of God's love for you, as counterintuitive as that might be. The second question I want to ask you is this. Do you believe that sin is against God? We don't immediately recognize that sin is conscious rebellion against God. We, we, we can make all kinds of different ex, uh, excuses. Only when the Holy Spirit shines his light on our hearts do we realize that sin is personally against God. And when that happens, we have great hope because God is a forgiving God. The third question I want to ask you is this. Do you believe that sin is found in motives, thoughts, and deeds? We may be able to go through a day without others actually sin, seeing our sin, but it is, it is there. It is at the level of the human heart that we will find selfishness, pride, a desire to be loved rather than to love, anger and lack of forgiveness, jealousy, complaining, and all kinds of other sins. When we are able to see that our sin goes beyond our actions and is rooted in our hearts, then we have hope. Because God's unfailing love is about changing hearts. And then the fourth question. Can you pinpoint right now a handful of sins that you see in your life? Now, don't list ways you have not always succeeded in life. Like, oh, I could be a, a better husband, etc. Or don't think in terms of uh, a job interview when they ask you, what is your greatest weakness? And you say, oh, my greatest weakness is that I work too hard. I want you to really think of sin. List ways you presently sin against God and start with the more obvious ones and keep on going. If you fail on this, if you can't really recognize any sin in your life, then this psalm is meaningless to you because you really won't appreciate the forgiveness of God. If you cannot think of yourself really as a sinner in practice, you really can't appreciate God and have hope in him because of his forgiveness. The psalmist knew that his deepest problem was sin. He also knew that his God, the triune God of the scriptures, did not keep a record of wrongs for all those who turned to him. The psalm anticipates the cross of Christ, where God placed the just penalty for the rebellion of his creatures on his son, as Paul says in Romans 5, verse 7 and 8, For scarcely a righteous man will one die. Yet, perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's where the psalmist put all his hope. And that's where we must put all our hope. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you'd use these words proclaimed today to speak to our hearts, that we might grow in our love for you, in our hope for you, 
and our hope of the blessed hope of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.